Have you ever wondered what it would take to turn your dream life into your real life? If you have a dream, a calling, or a passion that's burning inside you, you know there's always a gap. The distance between where you are and where you want to be. And sometimes that distance is insurmountable. Thankfully, you're not alone. You've got friends, family, and a crowd full of seen and unseen supporters cheering you on. I'm one of them. My podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper, are conversations with real people who face discrimination, heartbreak, insensitive comments, and sometimes found themselves wondering if closing the gap is really possible. Each person has generously shared their lessons on how they navigate life's trials to enjoy the triumphs it has to offer. They share years of experience so that you, too, can turn your dream into real life. Well, I am so excited to have the opportunity to talk to a colleague of mine, Marcus Miller. And this, as I've thought about these podcasts and we try to deliver great content to the people who share my point of view and want to learn more about how to create more belonging and meaning in their life, you know, we're all trying to get lessons from people who are still navigating the same challenges in the world that we are. And I think it is important that we pick the brains of other people, for lack of a better way of saying it, so that we can understand their journey and how they've figured out ways of navigating and they have the opportunity to share with us their journey and we may be able to learn a few things from each other. So with that, Marcus, thank you again. Today's discussion is really about your plan and how you set up what really became, as we talked offline, your kind of your North Star. And one of the things that you mentioned and, and kept mentioning repeatedly is, is that for you, sometime over your life, you decided that your North Star really was about helping others become their best selves. So I want to ask you the question, how, how did that come about? Well, first of all, Denise, thank you for the opportunity to participate. I think this is exactly what people who are continuing their search for meaning and purpose will need to push forward. And and in my own way, uh, as I shared with you, I never really thought about uh, a North Star in the classic, if not romantic sense. I just knew that there was something that was pulling me, driving me toward uh, wanting to be someone that was bigger than myself in the world that I occupied. And I say that to mean primarily I always felt like there was something more I could be or should be doing because of what I felt about the world that I lived in, the the life that I occupied, and wanting to have a chance to have some impact that would benefit other people since I had to live in the world with those other people. So when I talk about being oriented towards helping people become their best selves, it's not just about the better angels among us. It's really about having people realize that they've got gifts, they've got talents, they have experiences that provide them with the chance to live a a life that uh, can be fulfilling. And I've built a plan uh, around how I'm going to accomplish that that has really been helpful to me even in times of, of, of challenge. You're so eloquent at it, so it, it does tell me that you spent some time thinking about this. 
kind of dissect for us a little bit, because there's lots of people that I encounter, and I'm sure in your, your walk, especially since a lot of your work is and your background is in nonprofits, right? Yes. So tell me some of the things that either experiences or books or other individuals who may have influenced you so that you began to not only identify this was it, but also embrace it. So that's a fabulous uh, uh, question. And as I thought through even my preparation for the next chapter of my career, I started thinking about some of my formative experiences. I'd had the great occasion to have spent time working as a volunteer. I went to a Catholic school uh, for grade school and all-boys Catholic high school. It was a college preparatory school. It actually started as a seminary. And at one point in time, I thought I wanted to be a priest because I saw a lot of the good that the priests did in truly selfless service to the young men and women who were part of my educational experience. And even with some of the readings, as you mentioned, you know, having read some books that some might think would be a little bit further away from this whole idea of, of self-service, I realized that books like Black Like Me, authors like Franz Fanon, Thor Heyerdahl, were really about exploring all of these possibilities because of who we were as a, a nation, who we had become culturally uh, as a collection of communities. And, and even as a young person, I was impacted in that way. I've had the, the good fortune of, of uh, two uh, wonderful parents, my mom, who was a teacher and then an administrator in the public schools, who also taught black history. So we were taught a very strong sense of self. And then my father, who worked uh, for years for the federal government in procurement, uh, but they also pressed clothes in the evening to make sure that we had the things that he wanted his family to have, but also so we could have the type of educational experience he believed we would need to be not just uh, functioning, but be truly uh, fully functioning in the world we would occupy. So all of those formative uh, experiences led me to places that were both unexpected as well as entirely expected because of sort of where I started. For example, mm -hmm. I played basketball. I was a very successful basketball player. But I came up in an environment when there was a combination of, of flash and dash because the, the, uh, the ABA, uh, which was a, uh, a rival startup to the, the, the NBA at the time, but also wow. a, a feeling that the best players were the players that made players around them better. Mm -hmm. so that was the kind of player I tried to pattern myself after. I also found that by seeking information from people who were older than me and certainly wiser, uh, it made me more cognizant of my own behavior. Uh, it didn't make me necessarily uh, risk-averse uh, because there is always uh, that uh, uh, shred of, I guess, challenge that. So let's slow down a little bit here. Um, first of all, tell me the years where you were – tell me a little bit more about the basketball because there's – you know, in our culture, and black culture in particular, many kids see that as sports, not just basketball. 
but sports, traditional sports at that, is a way out. And so when did you play in this competition during your life? So I started playing basketball formally and officially in the sixth grade because the the school, the the grade school I went to, the Catholic school, uh, boys and girls, had basketball starting in the sixth grade. So I couldn't play before I was in the sixth grade. Okay. Uh, For all the years prior to that, I played sports like a lot of other neighborhood kids did. We played tackle football in the backyard. We played baseball. Uh, we played basketball uh, at the playground or in the backyard because my father had the foresight to put a basketball goal in the back, knowing that we were tall. He figured that maybe this will help them turn into something positive. Yeah, uh, yeah. And semi-humorously, you know, my friends I grew up with used to call me Geritol because I was very thin mm-hmm. uh, and, and not very strong. I don't know that I was very anemic, but... Um, I've sort of endeavored internally to overcome that 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 nickname. Yeah, that yeah. So that portfolio, yeah, portfolio you're talking about. You didn't have the what you know. Some people would say the right resume. Well, that's just the right resume. But just like there's authority figures, I wasn't an authority figure, uh, but I was someone who, because of what I learned playing uh, team sports and basketball in particular, that. People working together to do great things by working together, not mm-hmm. by individually soloing, not by trying to be dominant, uh, by playing within the game uh, mm-hmm. and, and still allowing your individual skills and abilities to rise to the occasion. Got it. So when did you kind of make the break of not going to pursue the official basketball to you needed something else and what was that something else? Well, it was a combination of three things. One, it was a quick realization that even as a high school All-American, there were no guarantees as a college basketball player. I came into college basketball at The Ohio State University as one of a collection of celebrated freshmen. And my freshman year, I didn't travel to all the games because there was a provision that said if you had 15 players, you could only travel with 12. Mm. Half the year, I was one of the three guys that didn't get to travel. Needless to say, that was a very powerful message to me that um, this basketball thing may not work out like I thought it would. Interestingly, like other people who were supporting me thought it would, because who would have thought that a high school American wasn't going to go on to stardom uh, in college basketball? Mm-hmm. It was a quick realization that. Things don't always work the way you want them to work. So it was at that point that I uh, decided that I had to do something else. Even though I still enjoyed basketball and I was going to be successful at it, I needed to prepare myself for the rest of my life. And, and by, at that particular point in time, uh, I decided that I needed to think about what life was going to be like 30 years in the future. Mm-hmm. I also happened to have uh, had – the occasion to have become a father at an early age. Mm, uh, my, mm. my child was born uh, when I was 19. She was born with congenital rubella, so she started out with some unique challenges. I'm proud to say that today she is a working blind adult who lives independently. Mm. But that experience also helped to further center me in a way that said, I have to do things that are not just about me, but are about other people. 
the the thing that really set me apart from even that line of thinking was some of the additional formative experiences I had as a college student, realizing that there was this whole other world that I was unaware of that was taking shape around me and how it would inform me in a lot of my career decisions and, and my life choices such that I found myself choosing to be a nonprofit professional over other opportunities and possibilities. So now let's explore that because that's an interesting conscious decision to make. A lot of people, you know, we push kids to be kind of these working professionals, working for corporations, etc. And we don't really help people understand that there's a whole world of nonprofits that provide opportunity for it. How did you make that decision over going into corporate America right now? Because you've well, done both. I have done both. I worked as first a volunteer for um, uh, March of Dimes and as a volunteer for Easter Seals because I had a child with special needs. Mm-hmm. Um, born with uh, congenital rubella, ended up having cataract surgery and also having a narrowing of the arteries to the heart, which caused major surgeries to, to be necessary. So that experience, seeing the, 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 the grit and determination of, of those, uh, those uh, young kids, including my, my daughter, experiencing the, the pain, but most importantly, the commitment from parents and family members to see their, their child and loved one through that type of, of traumatic, challenging experience helped me see that with the support of these professionals that we were encountering, these families were able to lead more fulfilling lives because they couldn't change necessarily the circumstances they found themselves in, but they found some comfort in the fact that there's an organization that was there to support them. And so that started you thinking about, you know what, I want to join this. I want to work like this. When I coupled those experiences with what certainly began as a personal faith walk that has strengthened over time, I realized that this whole concept of philanthropy, which really comes from Greek word that means love of a people, stemmed from the voluntary action of individuals and organizations to help the communities that they're part of. Mm-hmm, I think sometimes mm-hmm. because of how technology and the, just the pace of, of change has caused us to be blind to certain truths, a lot of organizations that are very well known today didn't start out with large professional staffs and competitive salaries. They started out as volunteers helping each other, helping their neighbors, helping their friends, helping people from communities that were just like theirs to overcome challenges or realize a greater measure of the benefit from being an American citizen, of having access to quality health care, of having access to a quality education, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. so I had the experience of first engaging the nonprofit sector as a volunteer, not as a paid staff person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't until I was actually asked by a guy named Paul Eberly, who was working at Ohio State at the time, if I'd ever considered a career in fundraising because he knew me as a salesperson. I had been actually selling to him and to Ohio State, which was, uh, of course, 
by then my alma mater. Uh-huh. Uh, and at the time he had come to me, I was working for an architectural firm doing business development. And the thought never even occurred to me that, well, I knew that there were people at, for example, the, the Speech and Hearing Center where I took my daughter and the, the Vision Center where I took her for her vision screenings. And even at the Nifonger Center, uh, which still is one of the most remarkable places in this country because of the help they give to um, children with special needs, sits on Ohio State's campus, it didn't really dawn on me that there were people who did this for a living. Mm-hmm. So when I got that opportunity, went interviewed, took the job at Ohio State as Associate Director for Corporate and Foundation Giving, I was just doing what I did in my regular life existence, if you will, developing business relationships, managing processes, et cetera. I just did that, and that, I found, was the success formula that was driving a lot of the nonprofits, is the ability to bring people together for a common purpose, to put resources in place to ensure that the desired outcome could be achieved, and then essentially grow that out from a scale perspective so that you can help more people. In addition to that, Denise, there is a trend that is about to take true hold where the standard employment contract, and it's Mm -hmm. been heading this direction for a number of years, is going to subvert people's entire notion of what it means to be successful. So tell me more about that. What is it? What did you see? So I think it was April of 2016, there was an article in The Economist magazine called The End of Employment, and it really talked about how corporations and other organizations are realizing that because of technology, because of productivity improvements and gains that have been made as a result of using technology, the need to have large staffs, the need to have infrastructure like buildings and creature comforts becomes less relevant. And so what people used to think of as good jobs, as basically college, career, retirement, those things are going away. And the accompanying article said that by 2019, which is just a year away, 40% of the American workforce would be independent contractors. Well, it's, it's uh, interesting you say that because in the mid-90s, I was on a task force with Monsanto where I used to work, and that was one of the projections that we had, that we needed to not consider ourselves company people, but to figure out how we're going to be self-employed. And everybody's self-employed. You just may get a different paycheck. And the number you gave, that 40% by 2019, actually, I looked at the statistics, and as of last year, 32% of the population is in some kind of not hired by a Bank of America, for lack of a better way of saying it, but they're in this contract gig economy is now what it's being called. So that prediction of 2016 actually was 10, almost 20 years before that, but it is coming. It is here. It actually dovetails with the theme we've been discussing today, and that is how you have to be strong in your conviction about who you are, and if you have a strong faith walk, whose you are because there's nothing guaranteed. You used to be able to say, I'll get a job and that job will pay me benefits. Now there are companies that are hiring people as independent contractors with no benefits. Yeah. 
uh, and there's even not a guarantee of employment based on your skills, on your experience, or even the tenure in a particular industry because that industry could be disrupted at any given moment. Yeah, and I think it extends even further out in that the employment contract has changed that I believe it's now we plug and play. If we look specifically for you to have a specific set of skills where we can plug in, you can play almost immediately. And then when we don't need that skill, we just pull you and let you back out on the market. So the flexibility that you need to consider, and it's, it's a challenge, but it's possible, is that I have a set of skills. I have a, a place in this particular space of value, and I can carve that value out without feeling undervalued or devalued because I don't have to have – myself attached to all the things that I've been told, you know, over my life are that important. And that, I think, helps to free people from the materialism that our country is well known for and prepare mm-hmm. us for the need to truly be more community-minded, not necessarily communal in the sense that we're all the same and we're all going to take care of each other the same way, but in a way that allows us to create communities that are better at and stronger in providing support because that's an essential part of being human. Yeah, and this idea, you know, it's it's interesting because going forward, any work that can be repetitive will be taken over through artificial intelligence and or robotics. And the only work that won't be done is work that takes creativity and the use of unexpected thinking. So that whole critical thinking nature is the one thing that, at least in the foreseeable future, even with, I was out in uh, California last year, and they're moving towards being able to now make it so not only is it wearable technology, glasses that bring the Internet up and do facial recognition, et cetera, et cetera, but actually integrate into your thinking so that as you think, things change around you. The technology may be able to do that, but what it will always miss is the ability to make trade-offs, the ability to do critical thinking and problem-solving, the thing to do artistry. And so, yes. you know, carpenters and, you know, even I, I heard trash collectors, their jobs can't be taken over because artificial intelligence doesn't know the difference between trash and treasure. Correct. <laughs> and so those similar, you know, <laughs> no matter what, there's always a role, but it's incumbent upon us to understand or, you know, we need to understand what our strengths are, what our limitations are, and we need to be adaptable and flexible. That idea of I can roll it out different ways. You've rolled it out in nonprofits, both being employed by them and working through them. You've done the corporate thing. You did sports. You did education. And now as you're in between and seeking the next role for you, the next chapter of your life, you know, you're still in that process of how do I take what I love doing and the skills that I have and roll it into something that's going to sustain the kind of life, the vision of my life that I want. A very accurate statement and one that I willingly take up as a challenge because I'm at a different place. Mm-hmm. This was 30 years ago and I was trying to raise a family I would have to make different decisions, but fortunately, decisions that I make are the kind of decisions that allow me to, in my own view, stay true 
to who I've become, which is someone who's committed to helping make communities better, helping people become their best selves, taking the sum total of my learnings and experiences and at least attempting to apply them in ways that create the kind of life that I believe uh, I can have and the life that I can help others create around them. And as we're coming, you know, towards the end, I, I do want to ask you one question because you've mentioned it a couple of times about the faith walk. And for many people, they're going to hear that as religion. I'm Catholic, I'm Protestant, I'm Episcopalian, I'm Jewish, I'm Muslim, whatever. But I think when we have talked offline, that's, it is something very different. Can you give us a, an idea of what that means to you, faith walk? Yes. As I mentioned, my faith walk has become stronger over the years because I've been able to see that by really believing or owning the belief that there was a bigger world beyond me, there was a bigger purpose for me, that my creator made me not just special, because everyone's special, but made me unique in my own way so that I could truly become what I am supposed to become. That took a lot for me to really embrace because you get pulled in different directions and you feel like, okay, am I going to miss out over here or am I going to, to lose out over there? And you don't have enough of an anchor to stay firm when winds or forces are, are pushing or pulling you in one direction or another. That, to me, is what faith is. It's, as the famously said, and I'll probably say it wrong, the substance of things unseen. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's the feeling, the belief, the knowledge that there is a purpose or place for everyone and everything. And when I say faith walk, it's something that you have to be active in. You can't be passive in it. It's not just going to happen. It's not as some would call it, it's not a sprinkle of pixie dust. It's mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. that you actually have to really have a hands-on experience with because it's there that you learn and apply, that you mm-hmm. then communicate what you've learned and applied so that others may have that same, maybe not the same exact experience, but may share that experience because it's that sharing that helps to create the baseline for a faithful adherence to this idea that everyone has a best self. Yeah, yeah. whether you know it or not, it's yes. there in you. It is there in you. That, that's one of the reasons why the nonprofit community now, as it's being called the mission-based sector, is so strong because there is a faith that the good in everyone deserves to be brought forth. That everyone yeah. has something of value, and, and the work that gets done in, in communities, including even some for-profit companies that have a social impact component, is really built around how do we make this life better for everyone because everyone deserves a better life. Yeah. That's faith. Yeah. And then taking the action, and so it's belief in action, right? Yes. Belief so it's not just first. And too many times, what people do is they take action, and then from the action, that's where their belief comes from. Correct. But really, it's about what is your faith? What is your belief about the world? And if you believe the world is a place that's not welcoming, then guess what you will see? 
All your actions will lead to you believing that because that's how we're wired. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and took away a few tips that will close the gap between making your dream life your real life. If you enjoyed this podcast, pass it along. Leave a question or a comment below. It would mean the world to me if I could connect with you. So go out to my LinkedIn page, ask for a connection or Twitter at Coach HR. And remember, answers are better than anger. Seek empowerment rather than the divisiveness. And the responsibility is yours to achieve the life that you really want to have. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.